Yes, Tom. Good for you. Did you get a breakfast at least? Tom and Teresa said that they finally checked out of the hotel this morning and they're moving into an apartment. So, wow. They were in there for six months. Hotel living gets boring after about a couple of days, yet alone six months. I think we did pretty well. Yeah. Well, it's at least a place to live. That's a blessing. Yeah. That's even better. Anything else? I don't. I don't. Did everyone hear that? Uh, a, a, a pastor in the pastor's group that Kevin goes to, his name's Daryl Roundtree, uh, two years ago about his, his one son died in a car accident, and then they were taking their daughter down to Boys College, and I guess they received word that their 16-year-old son was skateboarding, hit his head, and died. So keep them in your prayers. That's... To lose one child, I can imagine, is tragic for your whole life. And then two, in a period of a short time as that, um, it's tragic. So keep them in your prayers. Daryl Roundtree, correct? And his wife and family. So anything else? I know there's, uh, continue to think of Frost and Todd. Darla, she's making adjustments. Without John, it's um, keep them in your prayers. And it, it is—it's my aunt's birthday today, Aunt Jan's birthday. I think she's forty-nine today. Happy birthday! Yes, Tammy. Okay. Sherry, when she goes, she's a member of Brady's Church. Keep her in your prayers, and she comes to the ladies' Bible studies also. All right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord and our God, we thank you for your blessings, your goodness to us, Lord, even in times of difficulty that we perceive. We're thankful that you're holy and sovereign over all things, as we're continuously reminded in the book of Romans. Lord, we rejoice with Tom and Teresa today that they're able to move out of this hotel and move into an apartment. Um, would you bless them, Lord, and uh, allow, allow them to stay at this place long term. And Lord, we think of some difficult prayer requests this morning for Daryl Roundtree and his family on the loss of another child. The difficulty, Lord, is probably indescribable, but we know that you're sovereign over all things, and I through this difficult and terrible situation, Lord, would your grace be pleased 
to be upon them. That's really all we can pray, Lord. There's no words of comfort or solace that we could give. And um, so many other prayer requests for Frost and uh, Todd Augustine and other physical challenges in our church for Sherry Wynn, Lord, is would you give her grace through this time in her life as she stopped her chemo? Just give her your peace. Lord, as we open up to Romans chapter 12 today, would you open our minds, Lord, and most importantly, renew our minds in Christ. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we'll uh, be in chapter 12 today of Romans. Last week I wasn't here, but I think my uncle finished uh, chapter 11 of Romans. And uh, we'll begin through the first couple of verses today. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And before we begin, let me go ahead and read them, set up a context of where we are. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So again, chapter 12, unlike previous chapters of Uh, Romans really is a transitional, pivotal point of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. And if you're familiar anything with the context of Scripture, whenever you see the word therefore, usually it's what is a conjunction. It's a connecting word of really two arguments or uh, two points that the author is making. So we see here in the first four words, at least in the New King James Version that I'm reading from, the word therefore. So whenever you see the word therefore, you have to go back and see what the author was alluding to. And this really is a beginning of a pivotal point for Paul in his letter. So we see at the end of chapter 11, as my uncle finished last week, is Paul's conclusion of the matter of the previous 11 chapters. He explains at the end of chapter 11 really the nature and wonder of God by which all things pertaining to salvation have come to pass. So I don't want to go through it all again, but you know the story and the summary of chapters 1 to chapters 11 of Romans. Paul is really given an um, exhortation, as it were, a, a summary of the salvation that is brought by God through Jesus Christ. How some are elected to salvation, how some are left to themselves, as we see in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and then how we see this paradigm, really, of Jew and Gentile relations, how the Jews have rejected the gospel by the judicial hardening of their heart by God, but then we also see uh, the Gentiles being accepted into the fold, being grafted into the tree as it were. And I think chapter 11, the end of chapter 11, even Paul does not have all of the answers. He can't give us exactly why all of these things happen, why God has chosen to go about doing this. But we do see in verse 34 and 35, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor, who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him, And then these immortal words of verse 36, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever and ever. So really, Paul does the best he can, explaining it in human terms to his human audience. But at the end of the day, he says, God, be the glory for everything. Who can know the mind of the Lord? 
So that's the end of chapter 11, and here again we transition to chapter 12, which will take us to the rest of the book of Romans, which is chapters 12 to 16. If my math serves me right, that's five chapters, ending this uh, letter from Paul to the Romans. And in this five chapters, 12 to 16, Paul deals more with general theology pertaining to the results of Christian faith because of the salvation given to us in Jesus Christ. So we go from more detailed uh, uh, exegetical, exegesis study of the first 11 chapters, Paul giving us answers to very difficult problems, and then chapters 12 to 16 is pertaining to Christians who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, more practical theology. Charles Ellicott, I think he sums it up very nicely here. He says this, At this point, the apostle turns from the speculative or doctrinal portion of his epistle and begins a series of practical exhortations to his readers as to their lives as Christians. In the first two verses of the chapter, he speaks of this general, uh, he speaks of this in general terms, but then goes on to give a number of specific uh, precepts and no very distinct argument or order. So Paul, in the beginning of chapter 12, sets up to his audience what he is going to give out through the rest of the chapters of Romans. Some of the issues uh, that we're going to see here, setting up for the remaining chapters, is how Christians deal with personal issues, how they deal with relationships, how they deal with persecution, how they deal with times of joy, even very down to how Christians are supposed to live under government and how we're supposed to um, honor government, as we'll see in chapter 13. And then also, how are we supposed to deal with persecutions and are we supposed to take vengeance as Christians? So that's just kind of a brief overview of what we're going to see going on to the rest of this book. Why is all of this important? Is because, again, the previous 11 chapters by which Paul concludes salvation is through God's electing grace. So again, chapters 12 to 16 is pertaining to people who have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And I think we want to keep this in mind as we're going through chapter 12 specifically. Really, through the whole book of Romans is this word grace. I think that's a pivotal word that we see throughout the book of Romans. And we need to keep in mind, we saw it in chapters 3. Let me go ahead and read 324 here real quick, just setting up this idea of grace. It says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The grace that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. Verse 416, or chapter 4, verse 16, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but to those who are of the faith of Abraham. So we see this theme again of grace, the grace that's been given to us by God through Christ Jesus. It's the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps them, strengthens them, increases them in the Christian faith, knowledge, and uh, delivers them to Christ. Put a little too much in there in my notes. But we see this theme of grace throughout Romans. And then what we have been given in Christ is undeserved and unmerited. And the results of this grace 
given to us by God is, again, we see this word, uh, word introduced here in the beginning portion of Romans 12, transformed. Transformed. And these are not unfamiliar verses to every one of us in here. I'm sure they're well known, but keep an eye on this word transformed. The grace of God that's been given to us transforms us into a new creation. So before I continue, let's uh, go ahead and start the verses here. Anyone have any comments or questions just on the brief background? All right. So we see here at the very beginning, I'm reading from the New King James Version, so we'll see there's slight variations of how the words are listed in different translations, but this is the New King James. He says, I beseech you, therefore, I beseech, I urge or call attention. So this is an important matter. It's not a passive word, but an active word. Paul is calling attention to his audience. Pay attention to what I have to say here. We see brethren, so believing brothers and sisters. Some translations also put in sisters. Uh, but brethren, just for a general audience. By the mercies of God. By the mercies of God, we are to do the following. Because of the mercy and the grace of God, we are to do the following. Remind ourselves, uh, verse 16 of chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Again, the mercy of God extending Christ to us, opening up our eyes to be able to see the goodness of Christ. And then we see here that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. It is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God on account of or because of his mercies towards us. So why are we supposed to present our bodies as a living sacrifice? That's not rhetorical. Why are we supposed to present our bodies as a living sacrifice? Because of the mercies of God. Because of the mercy that he has shown to us we, in turn, our responsibility as Christians is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, I'm sure this is just review for a lot of us in here, but just to make sure, this is not regarding to offering up old sacrifices or sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins, as it, or I should say the covering of sins, as in the Old Testament, since Christ already died once and for all. We know that all in here. But it's in handing ourselves over to God because of his mercies to us. Romans 3.25, as we just read from earlier, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That is, to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So this is not, again, of the insufficiency of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That's obviously not Paul's point here. His point here is the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, in turn, should give us the desire to give our bodies to God as a living, perpetual sacrifice. It's the bodies, in a sense here, that you present your bodies. Um, John Murray, in his commentary, said the word body here does not, is not all-encompassing, but really does specifically mean body. Our bodily actions, our bodily functions are supposed to be handed over to God for his service as a living sacrifice. John Gill says to devote themselves to God 
as if they no longer had any claim on themselves to be disposed of by him to suffer and bear all that he might appoint and to promote his honor in any way which he might command. This is the nature of true religion. This is the nature of the sacrifice that we are supposed to give to God because of his mercies towards us. And he doesn't stop there. Paul doesn't stop there by just saying, giving our bodies as a living sacrifice. We're introduced to two more words here, holy and acceptable. Holy and acceptable. So we see this. I think this is really pertinent as Christians to really pay attention to how are we giving our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Holy. We see this word holy. In the Old Testament system, what was impure could not be offered to the Lord. It was not to be accepted. Leviticus 1.3 says this, and the whole book of Leviticus gives multiple examples of this. Leviticus 1.3, In his offering is a burnt offering from the herd. He shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be acceptable before the Lord. So when we give our sacrifices, when we give ourselves to God, it is to be pure. It is to be perfect, not imperfect. And I think we struggle, myself as Christians, I think every person in here, what we give to the Lord, whether it be our energies, whether it be our thoughts, our actions, and our deeds, they're not the best and the brightest. But we know from the Old Testament example, what we give to the Lord is supposed to be the best of the herd. It's supposed to be the best of our faculties. So let me read this. Are we given to the Lord our best faculties, the best parts of our day? Are we dedicating to the Lord our best energies and emotions? Or is he on the back burner of our lives? Where we still present to him, as it were, but after we've done everything else throughout our lives. Is it later in the day? Is it when we're tired or when we have time? So I think what Paul is saying here is when we're giving ourselves as living sacrifices to the Lord, it's supposed to be the best of us. It's supposed to be all-encompassing, sure, but it's supposed to be the best of us. So just a point of application here is I, I looked up a statistic. I think it was 16% of Christians, and that's loose. You know, what a Christian is in the United States is not our definition, of course. But only 16% of people who claim to be Christians read their Bible on a daily basis. And I think it was some like 20% read their Bibles on a weekly basis. And I would say that number is far lower to people who pray on a daily and weekly basis. And I would say that those people who are reading on a daily basis, they may just be at the very least cracking open their Bible, reading a verse, and then going throughout their day. But for a personal application here is when we are giving our bodies over as a living sacrifice to the Lord, how are we doing that? Are we, and first thing in the morning, what is our first thought? Is it about what our activities of the day? Is it about what we check on our phone, the news that's going on? Or is it giving our best time of the day to the Lord? Now, maybe your best time is not in the morning. Maybe it's in the evening. It's, not a, it's a more of a personal preference, I believe. But what is the best faculties? What is your best time? What is your best energy? And how are you using it for the Lord? And I think that's application here. Is the Old Testament, they were commanded to give the best of what they had to the Lord. Are we giving the best of what we have to the Lord? So I won't tell you how or when or why, where to do it, 
but I think that's a self-reflection that we need to take. How's our prayer life? When are we praying to the Lord? Are we praying just when we need something? Or are we praying to the Lord on a continual, perpetual basis? Check your sacrifices and your offerings to the Lord. Are you dutifully giving and tithing, giving your time and thoughts to the Lord? So this is, all, this is spiritual, but a living sacrifice, I think, pertains also to what we give to the Lord monetarily or financially. Are you faithfully tithing to the church? I don't know what, if, I don't know what each and every person in here is supposed to be tithing, but it's supposed to be sacrificial. You're supposed to be giving something up when you give your time, energy, and money to the Lord. Are you faithfully giving in an all-encompassing manner of everything that you have to the Lord? Are you giving the best of what you have to the Lord? The Old Testament commanded it, and I think Paul in the New Testament commands it here. We also have to see that it's supposed to be holy, but it's also be to be acceptable to God. That's another key aspect here that we have to remind ourselves. What is the nature of our sacrifice? Let me just throw something out here. Are you going to you know, uh, do something inappropriate with yourself and then go give the money to the Lord? Are you going to go rob a bank and say, hey, I'm going to go tithe 10% of that to the Lord? Is that an acceptable sacrifice? Of course not. That's not an acceptable sacrifice. So are we robbing the Lord? Are we giving to the Lord what's ethical? Did you unethically earn money or did you unethically do something and then are you giving it to the Lord? Is that acceptable to give to the Lord? So the nature of our sacrifice is not only supposed to be holy, the best of what we have, but it's supposed to be acceptable to the Lord. And again, this isn't just a monetary standpoint. This is all-encompassing. All-encompassing here. What is it to be acceptable to the Lord? It does not mean we have to go out and seek also our own martyrdom, as some early church Christians did. Um, the nature of our sacrifice doesn't have to be you know, something that's atrocious, or it doesn't mean we have to go out and seek to give our lives to the Lord. That's incorrect. There was uh, some early church, really heresies, uh, the Donatists, who were St. Augustine really battled against, they really sought martyrdom. They celebrated martyrdom. They went out, they thought that the, the goal, the end of their life, how they were supposed to die, they were supposed to be martyred for Christ. And I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. It does not mean we have to go out and seek our own death. We shouldn't try to avoid it, but that doesn't mean we try to seek our own death and giving an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. First uh, Peter uh, 1, 5 to 16, or excuse me, 15 to 16, Peter says this, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because that is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So as God is holy, we are commanded to be holy as God is holy. So, really, what does this look like? What is a holy and acceptable offering or sacrifice to the Lord look like? I think we've kind of covered it already, but I think it's scripture reading, it's meditation upon the scriptures, it's study, it's self-reflection. How are we becoming more and more like Christ? Hebrews 4.12 says this, a well-known verse, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the divisions of the soul and the spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So scripture reading, meditation, and prayer, pivotal for the life of the Christian. 
when we're sacrificing to the Lord. And again, just another couple points of application here is to, to be redundant, but prayer, seeking the Lord's help. We're commanded to pray perpetually, pray without ceasing. And I would encourage you, if you don't, to set aside time every day to pray to the Lord. Giving, giving time, money, resources, and energy to the Lord. Evangelizing, this is a big one. Are we sharing God's word with others? It's not just self-sacrifice that we're supposed to do, but we're supposed to sacrifice ourselves in a living, acceptable manner by evangelizing and sharing the word of God. That's a commandment that God has given us. And we'll also see, going through Romans chapter 12, Paul will get down to the nitty-gritty. We'll see verses 9 to the end of the chapter, other ways that we're supposed to be living sacrifices to God. And then finally, to finish up this verse, which is your reasonable service. Uh, The New New Geneva Study Bible has, instead of reasonable, they have rational, which I do like that word, rational, which is your rational service. Why is that important? Well, through the previous 11 chapters, we've seen that we were dead in sins, we were haters of God, and what did the Lord do? He opened up our eyes and ears and our minds and our hearts to see Christ wholly apart from us. We had nothing to do with it when he opened our eyes and ears to see Christ. So because of what God has given to us, given us his son, what is our rational response supposed to be? What is our rational response? Our rational response should should be be to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. We see also Hebrews 9, 6, we read this. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. So this word service here is also this word um, div- uh, worship that's used in the Old Testament, where the priest's duty was to the Lord in the tabernacle. So what is our duty? What is our service it's to perpetually, as the Levitical priesthood was, perpetually sacrificing and serving the Lord. So the life of the Christian is supposed to be a perpetual service and sacrifice to the Lord. I think that's important. If someone takes your place in regard to the penalty that's going to be paid out to you, what would your response be to that person? What would your rational response be to that person? If someone took your spot, took your place... How could you ever repay them? You could never repay them, but you could serve them. Matthew 13, uh, 45 to 46, uh, Jesus says this, and this is the uh, parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. I think in similar context here, we've received this great pearl of Jesus Christ. What do we do? We give everything we have for it. Give everything we have for it. And none of us in here does it. You're fooling yourself if you think you do. And we never will. But we're commanded to. And what that looks like, I think it's different for every single person. As again, we'll see here um, going through chapter 12. Counter to this commandment, uh, excuse me, counter this commandment with the world. Just think here for a second. Isn't it so foolish to give anything to Christ? It is unreasonable to give to missions, to take Sundays off of work, take Sundays off of play, to read something so archaic as the Bible. 
this outdated book, to take time to pray to some invisible deity in the sky. All of these things are unreasonable to the world. But our rational service, our reasonable service, is to do that. And I think in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, If Christ did not raise from the dead, we are, the, we are of all men the most pitiable. It's completely foolish. What are we doing here this morning? If Christ did not save us, if he didn't raise from the dead, if he's not sitting at the right hand of God right now, what are we doing here? So in the same manner, if you know that Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior, if you're convicted of it, it should be your duty, it should be your desire to give yourself as a living sacrifice, or excuse me, a living sacrifice to God. Before I continue to verse 2, anyone have any comments or questions? And we'll see more practical effects of this as we go on through chapter 12. This is kind of uh, just an overview. Irrational to the world, but rational to, yeah. to Christians. Yeah. That. Yep, certainly. All right, let's continue on here. Verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. John MacArthur quotes Kenneth Woost. He says this, Stop assuming an outward expression which is patterned after this world, an expression which does not come from nor is representative of what you are in your inner being as a regenerated child of God. And that's pertaining to the first part, and do not be conformed to this world. I have written here, be fashioned to this world, be molded to this world. The commandment is to not be conformed to this world. Did I spell that right? Yeah, conformed. Do not be conformed to this world. That's just reasonable, especially after verse 1. Why would we give our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, but yet be conformed to this world? Again, this is a rational, logical argument that the apostle is giving and presenting to his audience. And conformed to this world, this term world here really is the meaning of age, the age in which we live. So again, keeping context here, Paul was writing to first century believers who, it appears, were in Rome. So the Roman world at this time was really decrepit. All sorts of pagantry, sexual immorality, drunkenness, immorality, across the board. And Paul was telling them, do not be conformed to this present age. And the application to us is, do not be conformed to this present age. And I would list here, do not be conformed to this present age when it comes to finances, when it comes to economics, politics, world affairs, Jobs, media, sports, recent news, etc. I'm not saying those things aren't important. They are very important. But, again, are they the center of our lives? Do they control us, or are we controlling them? I would say, kind of as an anecdotal piece of evidence here, 
from my experience from the industry that I'm in, I, I work in finance, there does not appear to be a whole lot of difference between the way Christians respond about how things are happening in this world compared to the pagan world at large. Now, I'm not retired. I don't have a huge sum of money that I haven't worked for my whole life, so my viewpoint is a little different. But is the way we react to news and events regarding our money, regarding our lives, is it different than how the world reacts? And from my experience, I would say no. When the stock market gets cut in half by 50%, I'm not saying we like it. I'm not saying it's good. But is our reaction any different than how the world reacts? And from my experience and the people that I've dealt with, the answer is no, from fine Christian people. Are we being conformed to this world in that regard? That's something we often forget. We look at the outward you know, characteristics of people, but how are we managing our money or how are we reacting to political news? I think last Tuesday, that issue one in Ohio didn't pass. So now in November, the abortion issue is going to the ballot, and if I was a betting individual, it's not looking very good for life in Ohio. That's, I'm not saying we don't fight. We do everything in our power to possibly we can do to save life. But how, what is our reaction? Are we reacting the same way that the world does? So just something to think about in your personal life. How are you reacting? How are you fashioning yourself after this world? And it's not easy. Every person is going to be different. But say in November that that abortion bill goes into the Ohio Constitution, what's our reaction going to be? I don't know. God's sovereign. He's in control of everything. But it's something to consider. Is our reaction the same as this world? And again, I'm, I'm pro-life, the most pro-life person that you can possibly be. But what do we do? I think this is also a summons to trust in the Lord that he's sovereign over everything. And But be transformed. This is pivotal here. But be transformed. The inward force of the Holy Spirit, which has changed our insides, should thus transfer to the outward nature of the believer. The inward change should be reflected in our outward nature and desires. Paul says this, writing to the, uh, to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We have been regenerated from the inside. Our inward regeneration should reflect on our outside characteristics. Again, this is not preaching perfection. No person in here is going to be perfected. But we should continually be transformed to the image and the likeness of Christ. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I think, again, the renewing of your mind, your all-encompassing thoughts. Paul dealt in the first chapter, or excuse me, in the first verse with bodies. Now he's dealing with soul and with mind. What we think, what we do, should be reflected in the inward change that we have in Christ, given to us by the Holy Spirit. And finishing up here, let me just go ahead and read uh, what the NASB has translated for the rest of this verse. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And the ESV, uh, excuse me, the English Standard Version has an interesting translation. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, 
what is good and acceptable and perfect. One of the greatest inklings of a Christian has is to be able to discern what the will of God is in their lives. Should I take this job? Where do I live? Who should I marry? Etc. All big decisions in our lives. What is the will of God? Paul answers this question in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And these first two verses and the rest of Romans is dealing with sanctification. The bringing out the Spirit into our visible attributes. What is the will of God? That you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect with the will of God. John Murray says this, To discover, to find out, to learn by experience what the will of God is, and therefore to learn how approved the will of God is. If life is aimless, stagnant, fruitless, lacking in content, it is because we are not entering by experience into the richness of God's will. I think that's beautiful. A beautiful summation of what Paul is saying here. To experience into the richness of God's will. What is God's will? It's our sanctification. How are we sanctified? Again, I think it's a repetition of verses 1. To present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, and not being conformed to this world. And again, by praying, meditation, reading God's word, and fellowshipping with God's people. I think that's how we discern the will of God. That doesn't mean through those things you'll get direct divine revelation about what job you're supposed to go or where you're supposed to move. But through that, you'll be able to decipher the things that God wants you to do in your life. I kind of remember a funny story. I think R.C. Sproul was talking about this specific uh, verse here. But he was, when he was younger, he had a, really a choice to move up to Boston, Massachusetts, I think is where it was, for some teaching job. And he said he prayed about it for some weeks until he received a random call from someone he hadn't seen in like 20 years. And this guy had like heard that R.C. had this job opportunity, and this guy said, R.C., you need to take this job. This is, this is for you. And R.C. Sproul kind of, you know, deciphered from that, well, maybe this is where the Lord wants me to go. Make a long story short, at the end of the, he was there for like two years. He said, I still have no idea why God wanted me to go there. He said it was completely pointless. So you get things in your life where you think they're direct revelations or what's what the will of God is for you. And we know that God works all things together for good, but it's not always easy. But I think by reading scripture, praying, and meditating on the word of God, will be able to navigate life. Christians and believers have been doing it for 5,000 years and will continue to be able to do it. As we finish this chapter, again, Paul will list some more details pertaining to Christian living, seeking God's will, and ways not to be conformed to this world. So kind of just gave you an overview. Paul will give us more answers here as we finish the rest of the chapter, uh, if not next week, the week after. So does anyone have any comments or questions? Done a couple minutes early. All right. Thank you for your attention.